Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. We are diving in, asking the question, what does it look like to be a Christian who is just kind of set apart um, for the use of God to just go, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Like you've placed me in this world. You've placed me in this time, this, this area. We, we are born here. We were born in, we, we are made to live through 2020 and beyond, right? It just feels like it's kind of this and beyond now at this point, like where we just keep going. God picked us. God picked us and placed us here. So what is the mission that God wants to accomplish through us? And we started off last week by just saying, uh, like most simply, the way we can break it down is the mission of God is always gonna begin in your own heart. So before we like to go and kind of cherry pick the problems of the world, we have to stop and ask the question, uh, search me, oh God, test me, see what's off or going on in this heart before I ever try to go and get involved in what you're doing out there, Lord, do a work in here. And as we let the Holy Spirit kind of come alive in us and do that work in our heart and rearrange the things that we prioritize and rearrange the things that we love to be more ordered and centered around God's kingdom, one of the first areas that's going to kind of spill into is our families. And that's what we talked about last week, that the first priority for the disciple of Jesus Christ is to be making disciples in your own home in your own home, with your own kids. Uh, Like our job parents is to be first and foremost pouring into our own children as the first area of ministry. But for all of us, like for who maybe do or don't have kids in your home, we we should be looking at our family, looking at the people that we find ourselves sitting next to at the Thanksgiving meal, even if we don't totally like them. Amen? And we should be going, God, how can I love? How can I serve? How can I treat them the way that you, God, have treated me? That's what we talked about last week. And what we're doing here as we go out, we're just sort of building the circles out, just like what's found in Deuteronomy chapter six, where God says, I'm gonna write this on your your heart and you're gonna write it, uh, and you're gonna talk about it with your kids. And you're gonna talk about it when you lie down and when you rise up and you're gonna put it on your doorpost and you're gonna put it on the gates of your city. It just kind of moves out from there. And so today what we're talking about is how do we love our neighbors? How do we love our neighbors? Who is our neighbor? How do we engage with and advance the mission of God with the people that we find ourselves around in the here and now? That's the question that we're asking this morning. And to do so, we're going to look at a parable, a well-known parable called the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, many of you have heard this. Many of you have already heard this sermon before in your life, right? And that's okay. That's okay because we always need reminded, especially in the tense and divisive age that we're living in now, how we can love the people that inhabit our world with us. Amen? Amen. Uh, we're going to do this just a little bit differently today. We've, we've certainly done it before and uh, we'll do it from time to time. But I'd actually love, uh, because this is so familiar, if we could just stand uh, to honor the reading of God's word this morning. We're going to open up to Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And this is just simply posturing our body to to recognize um, that this is the word of God that's being read to us right now. Uh, Luke 10, verse 25 says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all of your mind and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the man, desiring to justify himself, how many of you can just say, "Uh uh-oh, real quick, (laughs) said to Jesus, and who then is my neighbor? 
So Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring, an, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And then Jesus asks the man, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the man said to him, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Um, you go ahead and have a seat. Lord, we thank you so much for this story. Um, God, I pray that we would not just have the eyes and the ears to hear um, what you've written and what you have for us in the story, but would we also have the vision to see in our own life how we can better imitate and emulate you to the world that we're living in. I ask God that you would uh, give us divine perspective and wisdom as we approach this story today. And, and would you kind of show us maybe where we've drifted off a little bit? And would you show us uh, your role in this story as we seek really just to be more like you in the world that we're living in, Jesus? We need you. We love you. And this is all for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, so, a little context for this story here, if you're not super familiar with it. Um, this starts with this guy, a lawyer. And I, when I think of a lawyer, I think of the show Suits, right? This guy all dressed up, ready to go into, into the courtroom and, and battle some sort of thing. And that's, that's not who we should really be picturing here. Even though the story starts with a lawyer, our mind should really be picturing a religious expert. Someone who has studied and who knows the law. And they have they, they, more like a seminary prof than, a, than an attorney, right? In our kind of uh, maybe cultural way of looking at this. And so this guy uh, who should have the answer to the question he's already asking comes before Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, like all of us, like if a, if, if a pastor were to come up to you or if uh, uh, someone who taught at a Christian college came up to you and said, what do you have to do to inherit eternal life? He just goes, what does the book say? What does the Bible say? How do you read it? And this guy answers, you're to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, I imagine him just, you know, awesome, bro, you got it. You're onto it. See you later, right? But this guy seeking to justify himself um, says, well, then who is my neighbor? He asks the clarifying question that I think a lot of us ask sometimes. If, oh, if the instructions are pretty clear in the great commandment to, that Jesus says, you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, all of your strength, and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, the next question is, how do I know if I'm doing that? AKA, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus answers that with a story. And every time Jesus answers your question with a story, you in trouble. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's going to be problems for you. So he he says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, okay, so there was this man and he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho and, and he fell. He was, he was beaten up by robbers, left half dead. This guy is beaten up on the road. And what we picture, when we picture like this road between Jerusalem and Jericho, we can't help but read it in our, in our modern American context where we think of roads being at least like two cars wide. And so there's probably a sidewalk on one side, a sidewalk on the other. And so that guy's kind of over there a little bit out of my way to go see him. But really this path wouldn't have been that wide. 
wide enough for a cart maybe, wide enough for some donkeys. Uh, but really this is a path that was walked between Jerusalem and Jericho. And so the path's not that wide. And a priest comes by first. And you think in the story, you're like, thank goodness, the priest has shown up. Like this guy's coming from Jerusalem, probably just finished ministering to the Lord for the last little bit. Who knows how long he was there? And he's, he's coming home. There is no better man to encounter this person in need than the person who's just spent all of his time in the temple, right? Except he, ste- he steps aside so that he doesn't encounter. It's, it's not like he, he goes to the other side of the street. He literally has to do like the, the Allen Iverson over Ty Lue in the NBA finals, disrespects him. Some of you know what I mean. Some of you don't, that's okay. And he just leaves him there. He leaves, I'm sorry. Hey, listen, it's March Madness. So there's gonna be just a few basketball references as we go today. It's just who I am, okay? Um, so the priest doesn't help. The priest, maybe he's, maybe he's concerned with becoming unclean. That was a big deal. Maybe he just had seen all of his money and all of his resources better stewarded for the temple than for this person. Maybe that's the case. But either way, he doesn't get involved. He steps aside. Then a Levite comes and you go, surely the worship leader is going to help out, right? I mean, the Levites, they are, they are worshiping the Lord. They're ministering to the heart of God. Surely they're in touch with the heart of God, knowing that God would want to help this person. And I'm just telling you, like, if this was Caden, I just know with my whole heart that he would help this dude. Like he'd have his guitar, guitar case in hand, probably. He maybe even would leave that thing behind to help this guy. I just, I know it, okay? But this guy doesn't do it. The Levite comes, he sees, he crosses over as well and keeps going on his way. And then Jesus introduces us to a Samaritan, which maybe for you and me, it just feels like a a no big mention. Like, oh, okay, this guy's just from Samaria, no big deal. But in that time, it would have been a very big deal. There There was a deep, deep racist bent hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. And so what Jesus is gonna do is he's gonna elevate the Samaritan to be the hero of the story in front of this Jewish teacher. And that's intentional. That's intentional. See, like the... The, the problem was so deep. It goes back so many years before this moment here, but, but the Jews would have seen the Samaritans as less than, half-breeds, uh, worthless. They would have prayed things like, thank you, God, that I am not a worthless Samaritan. Like they would have prayed prayers like that. That's, that's how they felt towards them. And so the fact that this Samaritan comes along and, and, and picks this guy up and is the one who gets involved and helps, God is trying to communicate something to us in that. And, and after that, this guy picks him up, he takes him to an inn and he, he puts him up on his own money and he puts him up with credit, right? He says, I'm gonna pay for the first part of his stay. And if there's anything else that he accumulates that he's gonna owe you before he leaves, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna pay that bill. And then you can, you can feel that the tension between these two races are so deep that at the end of the story, Jesus says, okay, there it is. There's my parable. Who is it that you think inherits eternal life? Who is it that you think loves his neighbor? And the religious leader can't even say it was the Samaritan. He says it was the one who showed him mercy. He can't even put that word on his own mouth. There's such deep hatred. You might as well think uh, it's like, it's like the, the Duke fan abandoning the UNC fan. You know what I mean? North Carolina. It's okay. Maybe not that. Maybe it's St. Peter's in Kentucky. You know what I mean? Like there's no way a Kentucky fan at this point, at this moment, if you're not watching and you don't know, I'm sorry, that's on you. But if, if it's a Kentucky fan that's watching and it's a St. Peter's fan that's on the road, ain't no way Kentucky's helping them out right now. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Murray State either, but that, okay. So here we go. I'm, I'm all in. Listen, this is, has nothing to do with my sermon. It's just a good story. You always root for the 15th seed in the second round, don't you? Third round now. Here we go. Okay. Anyways, so 
I want to pull just a few things out of this story because I think all of us have some things that we can see and things that we can learn from this good Samaritan. And the first is that um, a life on mission, a life on mission always measures our capacity for love, not by how much we like the people that we hang out with all the time and really like. A life on mission measures our capacity for love by how well we love our enemies. See, so it's honestly, it's pretty easy for me to love my family and to love my wife and to love my friends and to love you guys, my church. I like those things. You know what I'm saying? It is way more difficult for me to love the people that I disagree with. It's way more difficult for me to love people that I would even say are enemies of the church because those are real people, aren't they? I mean, I'm, even, even right now, you think of in the state of Colorado, we're, we're possibly about to pass one of the most aggressive, evil abortion bills that we have ever seen. And that's sitting in front of our legislature right now, and it's just waiting to be put into effect. And, and there, I'm not, I'm not going to sit up here and act like this is easy. Because we're not talking about people you just kind of disagree with. We're talking about people that you're, you, you think of them and you are frustrated. You think of them and they are evil. You think of them and they are, they are br- not just broken, but they are perpetuating the brokenness of the world that we're living in. And so you all think about it for just a sec. Who is that person? We all have somebody or, or a group of people that we just go, oh man, if I just encountered them, I don't know what I'd do. And our call is not just to love the church well, but to love our enemies well, to love our enemies well. Jesus shows us this in Luke chapter 6, just a few chapters before this. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28, uh, Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. So if you want the blueprint on how to love your enemies, if you want to have a, a little template on how to walk through how I love my enemies, you go right here to Luke chapter six. Jesus says, love your enemies first. Have a heart posture. Make a decision right now that you're gonna love the people that you encounter that you disagree with. You're gonna love the people who think differently about this world than you do. If you make the choice now that you're gonna love them, then and only then can you really do the rest of the list. But if you're trying to kind of muster up some love in a moment, you're going to be so overcome by your differences that you won't be able to actually get yourself to a spot of loving them. You have to decide now, whoever it is that I encounter, my choice is to love them. My choice is to love them. And so when I see them, I'm actually going to do good to them. I'm going to do good. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to smile. I'm going to, I'm going to give them a hug if they're hurting. You know, what I mean? I'm going to show up with a meal if they need something. I'm going to be there to serve their family if something falls apart in their life. We do good to our enemies. And then like, I I wish almost that it would just stop there. You know what I mean? Because then the next command that Jesus gives is to bless your enemies. Um, Bill Johnson, popular pastor. You may like him, you may not like him. It's not really my point. He's the pastor of Bethel Church. And a lot of people really don't like him because of his theology on some things. And that's okay. Maybe there's some point there. Maybe there's not. But, But Bill Johnson, the way he talks about taking communion every single day, He takes communion every single day. And you want to know one of the first things that he does? He prays a blessing over every single person that's against him, that hates him. And so he knows several of the well-known pastors around our country and and like him or not, this, this is beautiful. He just goes through the different names of people who are out to destroy him and everything that he's after. And he prays just a blessing over their family, a blessing over their health, a blessing over their marriages. God, would you just bless their children that they may walk uh, a long, long time in a deep, deep relationship with you, God. He just prays blessing over them. So a lot of us, when we think about our enemies, we jump straight to the last thing first. We pray for those who are against us. We pray for those who abuse us. 
And our prayers, if we're honest, are a lot like the, God, would you just bring your justice down on this place, on this person, right? But that's not the way that Jesus has ordered us to love our enemies. He says, no, you're going to love them. You're going to do good. You're going to bless them. And you're going to pray for them. You're going to pray for them. This is, this is way easier just said than it is done. But we're called as Christians to have a, a countercultural vision for love. Right now, like love is you agree with me and you accept everything that I accept and you, you just, you affirm everything that I want to affirm. And that, that is what love is right now in our culture. But the Christian would say, no, I can actually love you, serve you, bless you, pray for you, even if we fundamentally disagree on a ton of issues, right? So our call and our gift really as Christians is to love people who are completely different or, or disagree with us totally, or even people that we actually disdain. That's our call as Christians. The second thing that this story shows me about a life on mission is that a life on mission recognizes that not everyone is my neighbor. Not everyone is my neighbor, but in an instant, anyone can be. John says this all the time in step one, that we as Christians have to embrace our limited agency for the world we're living in. Like, so you and I are not meant to carry all the world's problems. There you go. Selah, like you're welcome, breathe out, rest a little. Like you are not meant to be all things to all people all the time. But God can use you to be the right person at the right time with all the things that he needs you to be in that moment. So God, God will put needs in your path. He put this person in the path along the way that this guy was already going, the Samaritan was already going, and a need came up, which shows me that if we're gonna love our neighbors, what that means, what that word neighbor means is anybody in any moment can become my neighbor. I'm not meant to solve all the problems in Loveland right now, but gosh, if one of the problems in Loveland puts itself right in front of me in an instant, I now show up as if that person is my neighbor. I'm gonna love them and I'm gonna serve them. So part of what this is going to take is us as the church embracing the fact that loving our neighbors starts well before we actually encounter any problems. So think about it this way. This guy, this Samaritan, as he's walking on the path was A, um, interruptible, and B, he had margin in his finances to help. Both of which I think take planning ahead of time, especially in the culture that you and I are living in. So uh, here's just a quick question for you. Is your calendar interruptible? Can, can you stop in just a moment and help somebody in need? Can you set things aside for just an hour? Can you, can you uh, lay aside all the work at your company, Mr. Businessman, Mrs. Businessman, Mrs. Business Lady, I guess, right? Okay. Can you set it all aside for a second just to walk the office to be interrupted by a coworker whose life's in a crisis? Can you just, can you pause? Can you hit, can you hit the brakes for just a second to see the needs that are in front of you? Because let's be honest, like it takes a certain level of margin in your time just to even see the needs that are going on that are around you. Like if you're just so jammed, like in jammed, packed full of all these appointments and all these meetings and all these places to go that you can't even stop for a second to see the things that are happening around you, you're too busy. You're too busy. Man, uh, this is a great reminder. Jesus lived his life at three miles per hour. He walked everywhere. Like you ever notice when you walk places, you just see things differently? When you go for a walk, you start to see your neighborhood a little differently. When you go for a walk, you start to see things that are happening in the city around you just differently than when you're going by at 35 miles an hour. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to convince you that you should sell your car and just start walking places. All right, that, that is not me. That is not what I'm trying to say. 
I'm just trying to say that Jesus lived at a certain speed where he was always able to be interrupted. He wasn't being inconvenienced. He wasn't being bothered. He was able to be stopped, talked to. He'd sit down, he'd recline, he'd have a meal. Like this is the Jesus that we love and serve. So the other thing that I see in this story is that um, the Samaritan was able to put this guy into a hotel on his own dime. And then he was in good enough standing with the community um, with his own money that he put him up on credit. Did you see it in the story? He gives him two denarii. He says, hey, this should, this should take care of the front end work here. So he puts him up on his, he has enough margin built into his own wallet that he says, hey, uh, here you go. This should cover the first cost. And then if he incurs any more costs while I'm gone, I will cover it when I get back. And the innkeeper's like, okay, yeah, no, we know you, right? You kind of get the sense. Yeah, we know you. We know you're good for it. You'll take care of it. So what I'm, what I'm trying to say is I think the church has to see our wallets and our bank accounts as, as tools, not as things that grab our own heart for our own pleasure and our own comfort and our own stuff, but rather that money is just simply a tool that can be used by the kingdom of God, however God wants to use it. Now here, everyone just take a collective exhale. There will be no pay, plate passed today, okay? Nope, we're not taking an offering at the end of this. Like, no, I'm not after your money, but I do believe that God is after your heart. Because a lot of people have this attitude about church where it's like, well, the church is after 10% of your money. I would say, you have got it all wrong. God's actually after all of your money. <laughs> it's not just 10% he wants. You ever notice when the Old Testament talks about the tithe, he doesn't use words like, give me the tithe. What does he say? Return, bring. So the tithe is something that we just are acknowledging. Hey, uh, God, this all already belongs to you and I'm just gonna give you back your 10% first. Right? And so I would actually argue that if you're, if you're just giving your tithe, you haven't yet began practicing generosity because generosity begins after your tithe has ended. And so when we come, like the reason that Katie and I tithe is because it is the consistent practice every month where we start to take our hand that is trying to grab itself over all of our possessions and grab itself over our bank account. And we just consistently remind ourselves every month. Nope, it's not yours. Nope, it's not yours. Nope, it's not yours so that when times present themselves that we can be generous, we are hopefully cultivating enough margin in our finances that we can step in and we can meet a need. We can help with something. We can provide some actual resources to somebody who needs something. And this, this takes level margin. This takes us as the church living on less than what we're actually earning. Do we get that? When Paul uses the words where he says, hey, uh, let every giver be a cheerful giver. Um, that word cheerful for being a cheerful giver is the same root word that we get the English word hilarious. When was the last time you gave something that was just hilarious? Where God puts something on your heart where he's like, hey, you need to help out in this need. And you're just like, ha, that is amazing. That is so funny, God, that you would say that. I, and, but God loves a hilarious giver, a cheerful giver. Somebody who doesn't, somebody who doesn't let their resources and their money own them, but they, we just see it as a tool to help advance the kingdom of God in however he wants to do it. Because it all belongs to him already. Amen? So we have to see that if we want to love our neighbors well, that begins with us guarding our time and guarding our resources so that we are prepared to help in a moment where God asks us to help. Because if you don't cultivate that margin ahead of time, if you don't start loving your neighbor now with the decisions you're making at Costco or at the car dealership or when buying a house, it's gonna be a lot harder for you to love your neighbor in a moment when you encounter a need, right? I think 1 Thessalonians wraps this up nicely. 
where Paul writes, um, he's talking about the love that the brothers already have for one another. He's like, you're already doing such a good job at this. He says, that indeed is what you are already doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. You're loving them well, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is a compelling statement. Like our life shouldn't be so muddied and so, um, so packed full with different things that we can't kind of see clearly the things that God's calling us to get involved in. We shouldn't be just so on this endless train to acquire stuff and to have the nicest things that we just miss the opportunity to live simply and to, and to love people well around us. This is the call. This is the call. The third thing that we see in this story is that um, a life on mission has compassion and draws near when what a religious spirit tends to do is create distance, create separation. So you see in the story, the religious response is, and, and again, we don't, we don't really know why. It's not given to us in the parable. We don't know why the priest and the Levite crossed the road and distanced themselves from this need. But we do know that the Samaritan, who's the hero of the story, has compassion and moves towards the need. So he doesn't, he doesn't create separation. And that's our tendency sometimes when we encounter the yuckiness of this world, when we encounter the brokenness of this world. Our, our tendency is to go, ooh, I'm just gonna stay over here with my Christian homies. And we're just gonna hang out. And we're gonna do our thing. And we're, going to go, and we're, we're going to go deep together, right? That's always the thing that people say when they're just wanting to hang out with Christians all the time. I, I love getting deep, but I, I also know that Jesus called us to cast our nets like we talked about week one. So we got to go deep, but we also got to fish still. We also got to be involved in this world that we're living in. And so he says, um, like in the story, the, the Samaritan, he was moving at a certain speed where he had eyes to see, and then he felt something. He felt compassion now, compassion is not this like cute little word that we've made it now, I think, in the world we're living in, where it's like, oh, you know, oh, so sweet. You see something and she's like, oh, like, I, wish, yeah, I wish I could help. Like, oh. it's, like this, it's like this visceral feeling of pain. A um, little insight into my marriage. When we first got married, Katie and I, uh, it was 11 years ago, which is crazy. Um, I learned, I was enlightened to the reality that I am a loud eater. Anybody else? Anybody else just had that painful realization after they got married? Um, I realized it sounded like a food massacre every time we sat down and ate cereal. Me in particular, like cereal was on the banned substance list when we first got married. Um, and Katie would always say like her words, if we're eating something and I'm slurping spaghetti, you know, and it, like to her credit, like I'm sure it was gross. I'm sure it was really, really gross. Some of you probably need to have this kind of enlightening moment. And, and this is my gift to you, right? I, she'd just be like, she'd look at me when I was eating something, she'd just be like, physical pain. <laughs> and I would just be like, you know, on my sassy days, I'd be like, where? Like, tell me, where, babe, do you have physical pain in your, can you point to it in your body? Like, how is my loud eating causing physical pain in you right now? And it, like, it's silly, but that, like, that's what this is talking about. That there, you see a need in someone. You see somebody going through the divorce. You see a kid getting taken out of their home. You see a homeless person about to sleep on another cold night in Colorado. And you start feeling the visceral discomfort and the pain and the urgency and the angst that goes like, oh, I can't, I can't watch this anymore. I have to get involved. This is what the Samaritan felt. He felt what this guy who's half dead on the road was feeling in that moment. He had this deep, just like dissatisfaction in his guts that wouldn't have gone away until he stepped towards it. So we as the church, we have to, we have to, if we're going to live life on mission, we have to step towards people's pain. 
We have to lean in to the hurting things in this community. We have to draw near to those who are suffering if we're gonna fulfill the mission of God. Our tendency is gonna be to wanna split up, to move, to make distance, not get around that messiness anymore. But God would call us to move towards it. This is, this is like echoed in James chapter two. James kind of famously almost feels like he's debating Paul in Romans where he's like, well, how is someone saved? Is it by grace or is it by works? And Paul's really, really clear in Romans that it's, 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 by, it's by faith alone and it's apart from works. And then James like, yeah, but your faith, like it makes works. And really they don't disagree at all. They're just saying the same thing, different parts of the same equation that you and I are saved by the free gift of God's grace. There is nothing that you did to deserve your salvation. Nothing. There's no one bit of you cleaning yourself up that made you more appetizing to God. No, he loved you. He sent his son to die for you. And as you receive that free gift of salvation by faith alone, that faith, what James' point is, it is it's always going to yield some type of works in your life. That faith just doesn't stay with just kind of this like, oh man, isn't it awesome? God loves me. But no, that faith, the real saving faith that gets in you always pushes you to do something. So he says, the context of it is serving the least of these, serving the needy. James 2, 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, is dead. And this is, this is just an echo of Jesus' parable, that if we want to inherit eternal life, then what we have to be doing is we have to be loving our neighbors. We have to be loving our neighbors. I think that all of this sort of finds its answer at the very end of the parable, Luke 10, 34 and 35. Because if for just a second, um, I want you to just stop for a second, because the worst thing that could happen from this sermon is that you convince yourselves that you need to go out from here and you have this kind of laundry list of to-dos of things that you need to do for God to be more satisfied with your faith, right? That's, and that's kind of our response when we hear sermons like this, is we're like, ah, oh, not really, not, oh, don't know what happened there. Don't really, I'm not really loving, not really loving my neighbor that well. I need to go out and I need to love them better because I want to have this kind of saving faith that sends me to heaven. And I would say that's, that's like a faith insecurity, Right? where you're, you're sort of insecure about your faith. And so your response to that insecurity is to go, oh, I'm gonna go love people better so that I can be more convinced that God will love me. Am I right? That's what we tend to do. Rather than acknowledging that the good Samaritan in the story, the hero of the story is Jesus. Jesus is the one who stepped down off of his animal, crossed the road to come and find you half dead in the street. Jesus came to meet you while you were uh, dead spiritually and alive physically. So you were, you were alive, my guess is you were breathing and you were looking around and you were seeing things and Jesus opened the eyes of your heart to see him and you responded to that invitation from him. Jesus is the one, he stepped off his horse, stepped down out of heaven to come find you and to come save you. Jesus is the one who, who bandaged you up, triaged you in a moment, put oil and wine on you, symbolic of the Holy Spirit now empowering and sealing you. Oil and wine would have been this disinfectant, getting all of the dirty things out. And the, I'm sorry, the wine would have been this disinfectant. The oil would have been this seal that would have prevented that stuff from coming back in. It's Jesus' saving work for you on the cross that he's talking about here. And it's, and it's then that seal from the Holy Spirit that comes in. He picks him up, puts him on his own animal and takes him to the inn. I think the best picture for the church in this parable is the inn. And we all should be innkeepers. 
where Jesus is saving these people. He's seeing these people come to know him and they're getting brought to us as the church. And we just go, how can we take care of these people? Some of you have, have come in here today and you are bruised and you are bloody from life around you and you're exhausted. And I would love so much for this to be a place where you could find some rest. Jesus has already put the payment down for you to be taken care of. So come, sit, heal, be restored, be made well. But Jesus is coming back, right? You see it in the story. He, sa he says, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. That's Jesus saying, I I'm going to come back. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take care of the rest because we're in this already not yet where you have been healed, but you're not there fully. And Jesus is gonna come back and he's gonna make all things right. And church, until you receive that Jesus is this person to you, Jesus is your good Samaritan, you're never gonna be the good Samaritan to somebody else. You're always gonna keep operating out of this faith insecurity where you're trying to make God love you more and you need to just stop. He loves you. He's saved you. He has given you a mission and a purpose. Rest, breathe, like sit in who he's called you to be. And out of that, then we can begin to be the good Samaritan that he was to the world that we're living in. Amen? So that leaves us then. Like, I know most of us are there. Most of you in front of me right now are Christians. You came to church. We shouldn't be surprised, right? So what do we do? What do we do in the meantime? There's a few steps, I think, that are pretty plain that we can take. I think the first thing that any Christian can do if they want to be a better person to their neighbors, if you want to love your neighbors better, the first thing that you should be doing is practicing falling in love with Jesus more every day. Practice falling in love with Jesus every day. Um, so here, I'll just say this, coming to church two times a month isn't going to cultivate a heart that's radically in love with Jesus in the culture that we're living in today. You are constantly being worn, beaten down, torn apart by the, all that the world has to offer every single day. And if you think two hours a month is going, to, is going to snap your heart back into captivation to King Jesus, you're wrong. You're wrong. You need to be praying every day. Praying every day. Even if it's, Lord, I, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. Help me. Meet me here. You need to be setting apart some time to pray and talk with him, commune with him every day. You should be in his scripture, in the word every day. Even if you just get the Bible app on your phone and you just get the verse of the day, that's a start. See the things that he's already said. Read those things. Get familiar with the story. But like, don't, don't miss church on Sunday. Don't miss encounter night the first Wednesday of the month. Get yourself in a group and say, I need to sit down with some other weirdos and I need to figure out how to do this whole Christian thing with other people right? Like don't skip, don't miss practices to help your heart fall in love with Jesus because that's the only way you're going to be a good neighbor. That's the only way you're going to be a good neighbor. The second thing I think that all of us can do is we can practice rehearsing our story. Practice rehearsing the testimony that God has already written in your heart that he's already done in your life. I love the, the blind guy that Jesus heals and he can see all of a sudden and they're, they're, they're quizzing him and they're going, how did this happen? What did he do? And he's like, I, I don't know, but I know this. I once was blind and now I see. Some of you get so worried about your testimony thinking that people are gonna want you to talk about the imputed righteousness of Christ to you and the justification of your sin and all of these different things, the atoning work of the cross and the salvation, the sanctification that you're now working out in all of us, right? And it's like, that's not what people care to hear about. People don't care about those words. And so if you don't know them, it, you, you, should, you, should, you should press in and study a little. I think it would be good for you, but it doesn't really matter. What people want to know is when they come up to you, they go, why do you go to church? Why do you love Jesus? They want to hear an authentic answer. They want to talk to somebody who's actually had something happen in their life. So a lot of you, you could say, I used to be a jerk. 
and God has worked out some things in my heart. I used to be greedy. And now with his help, like I'm more selfless like he is. I I used to be caught up with this lust. I used to be caught, I mean, whatever it is, hopefully you have a story where you can look back and you can say, that was the old Austin. That guy is dead and gone. And now I'm practicing living into the new Austin that Christ has made me into. And I'm not perfect yet. And I'm not there yet. But man, you should have met that guy. He was a train wreck. You know what I'm saying? All of us have a story. Do you practice saying it so that if someone, if someone just by chance ever asks you, why do you go to church on Sunday? You actually have an answer prepared for them. Where you don't bumble around your words and fumble and uh, like you've thought about it. No, this, no, Jesus, God, you've done so much for me. If I just think back and I go back through the things that you've done, I can remember, I'm reminded, my heart's stirred up towards worship just thinking about who I used to be and who I am now and who I'm going to be someday, right? Practice telling your story. The third thing, practice getting awkward. I wish it was a cleaner point to end with, but I think if we're going to love our neighbors well, if we're going to step towards the need of our neighbors that we encounter, we have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. We have to practice being awkward, right? Because that we're, I think we're so convinced that the reason like we don't want to have conversation with people about Jesus is because like the, the awkwardness alone is what's going to kill us, you know? I'm alone. Okay, that's amazing. Um, well, John, John and I were down in Colorado Springs. This was for a pastor's conference back in like September last year. And we were at a restaurant and we were at that part of the restaurant where it's like the high top counter, you know, um, it was the bar. We were sitting at the bar, okay? <laughs> I'm just being honest with you all this morning. And, and, and we were just debriefing on, the, on what was taught that day. We were kind of chewing on some of that stuff. And, and all of a sudden, the bartender walks around the corner and she, she can't really see us. We're kind of at the side of her vision, but she just kind of does one of these. She goes to the register and she's just like, <sighs> and then she just starts crying. I mean, she just wipes away a few tears, clearly doesn't want anyone to see. And, and so we go, okay, like here we are pastors at a pastor's conference. I guess we're getting involved, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> No, but really it was pretty easy to see. Like she was having a terrible day. And you know what we did? It it was profoundly theological. It was intense. We just said, hey, how are you? Are you okay? I mean, we just had this, started this small little conversation with her. How are you doing? And she, she started opening up a little bit and we just went, man, can we pray for you? I'm sorry that's happening. Can we pray for you? Look, like I never saw that lady again. I probably never will. I don't even remember what she looks like, honestly, in this moment. Like, so I don't, I don't know what happened. Maybe her whole life was changed by Jesus. Maybe not. It doesn't matter. Our, po- our mission at that point in that moment was to just see somebody hurting and just to move towards them. Just to go, like, and it's not that hard. This is, you do not have to be a pastor to do this. To simply ask the question of somebody in front of you, are you okay? Like, you, you don't seem like yourself right now. Is everything all right? And then, and then always the awkward question, can I pray for you? Right? We're so convinced that's going to be so awkward. And my answer is, yes, it is going to be awkward for probably about 10 seconds. And then it's going to be insanely normal. Like you're just going to realize that it's just other humans that are just trying to figure things out just like you are. But you have, you have the playbook because you've discovered Jesus and you just want to share some of that with them in a moment. And you just go, hey, uh, can I pray for you? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you're going through that, but can I pray for you for just a moment? That, that's what we can do with all these teeny little moments that we have throughout our day. If we've cultivated enough margin in our calendar, if we've cultivated enough margin in our resources, if we've sat in the presence of God and and responded and reflected on his goodness and generosity and love towards us, then we can see needs in our city, see needs in in our neighborhood, and we can step in and help meet them. We can be the hands and feet of Jesus by, by looking and seeing them, by feeling compassion, and by moving towards those that are hurting. Amen? 
Would you guys go ahead and stand? I'm going to read one last scripture with you all. And this is a well-known passage. It's, it's the wedding verse on love. You know what I mean? You hear this at every wedding and, and it's beautiful. And there's, there's a, a groom and his bride and they're, they're pledging, they're committing to love each other like this. And it's really beautiful. And it's just not the context at all. It's not the context at all for this passage. It works well. And I think spouses, we should strive to love each other like this for sure. But really, I want you to read this with two, two points in your mind. This is how God's loved you. You and I were once enemies with God. Like we were, we were acting in rebellion to his kingdom. We, we were the enemy at one point, folks, and God moved towards us. And so we read this first through the lens of like, this is how God loves me. And we read this second with, this is how I'm supposed to love the world. Every single person, regardless of whether I agree, vote, look the same as them or not, right? So as we read this out loud together, I want you to be thinking of those two different um, points. So, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Jesus, I just pray that we would be uh, the kind of people who can love our enemies with the same kind of love that you've first loved us. Jesus, I pray that this week, uh, all throughout our church, all throughout the different places we're going to be, would we be seeing different needs and encountering different neighbors and stepping towards those people in the way that you would have us step towards them. I pray that you would give us very specific direction and clear intention on how to go about conversation and who to talk with and who to like, uh, initiate things with God, who we can pray for. I pray that you'd have just divine appointments for all of us this week. And would we, as your church, be attentive to your voice? Holy Spirit, I pray that we would listen to you well this week. Jesus, send us out of here focused and fixated on you, your gospel, and your glory, Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.